Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Oh, hello. You found Waypoints, where the Waypoint staff and friends take a break to nerd out and deep dive on the culture, art, and entertainment that's been inspiring and provoking us lately. Gather around the table this week, we've got Patrick Klepek. I don't know if this podcast is going to work, but I'm not. Don't give up on that intro. One day, you'll get it. <laughs> I. What are you talking about? I think it was beautiful. I love the vibe. Welcome, Welcome to our table. Have a seat. Also seated at the table, Renata Price. Howdy. Recording everything that happens at the table, our producer, Ricardo Contreras. So you've set up a kind of home invasion situation here where we're sitting at a table and someone comes mm. in off the street and you're they like, oh, hello. Is this just like a, a focus <laughs> group <laughs> where they're Wouldn't you be expecting a guest? You would be expecting a guest and you're always surprised. No, like a friend dropping by. Like, oh, we're so delighted. Like, you were in the neighborhood. I'm thrilled. We all, at first, we all, the conceit is we are the sort of people that would be delighted that even a close friend would be welcome if they just randomly showed up. Uh, and so, in that conceit, that's how, pe- that's uh, how people are, in their late 30s feel. It's just like uh-huh. people just randomly showing up to their house unannounced. Hell yeah. Like, this is good. Time to I hang out. This. Here's, I brought some alcohol. <laughs> Uh, but in this case today, we uh, we did what what people our age actually do, which is we scheduled fun with a scheduled <laughs> guest. Uh, welcome back, our friend, comedian, host of Adam Ruins Everything and the G Word on Netflix, Adam Conover. Adam, welcome to the show. Hey, thank you so much. I was told I'd be on a Waypoint Radio, but I'll, I'll happily be on a Waypoint because <laughs> I because I understand the difference between the brands and I value them both. So See? I'm Maybe. happy to be on either one. Adam gets it. Patrick, you can take some notes. <laughs> uh, yeah. Well, you know, maybe on the Waypoint Plus feed, this can be a Waypoints, but in the like the normal, the ad zone, this can be a Waypoint Radio. We can we can make everyone happy. <laughs> no. That'll settle all the confusion. <laughs> yeah. We're gonna change Kato, the title. And also, Kato, if you could just do tweaked versions of the art for both those scenarios, uh-huh. I think that'd be that'd be perfect. And I know that in theory creates a split in the timeline over the count of the episodes. Oh my great god. Right. Oh, no. All right. Yeah. Kato, you gotta go dig up. I don't know which waypoints episode this is. You're gonna have to go through the files and find that out too. One day you're gonna have to unify and renumber them all. Yeah. Come up with a new system. This is great. This is I love this. Kato, we just invited you to an organizational tool this morning in a meeting. Like you're good. Oh, yeah. you have awesome. Help with this. <laughs> That's definitely gonna help. Another tool. <laughs> uh so listen, Adam. Mm. Uh the conversation we're, we're here to have. Look, I, I gotta tell you, my streaming life was just upended. 
uh, last <laughs> week by mm-hmm. really dire rumors that HBO Max was go- just going to be gutted and subsumed immediately within Discovery Plus. Like people were like, get your last watches in uh, tonight because this time tomorrow it's all going to be Discovery shit. Uh, and apparently, like, there were rumors that Warner Warner Brothers Discovery CEO uh, David Zaslav was openly hostile to the platform and the brand. And so there was there's real fear that, like, HBO Max was going to be imminently uh, killed off and everything we moved over to Discovery Plus. That seems like it has not proven entirely true yet, but mm-hmm. it also seems like overall the future of HBO Max and just the business that the media conglomerate uh, it's, it's a part of that future does not look bright uh, for people who value what HBO max is and represented. Yeah. Uh, To say the least, I mean, look, I'm involved in a whole lot of, you know, entertainment industry group texts and like Twitter threads and, you know, people like people actually in the industry were like completely panicking last week because like the last three years have been just this unprecedented time of turmoil where there was a huge expansion for streaming. And then there's the industry is now appearing to go through a gigantic contraction as well for a couple of reasons. One of them being that you know, Netflix has revealed that uh, they're fucked and everyone else says, oh, does that mean we're fucked? Do we, so we should stop making television too? Um, And uh, so that's its own earthquake. But there's also simultaneously just these wave after wave of media consolidation. So, I mean, I'm very happy to tell this story. How far back do you want to go? We could start with the previous merger. Yeah, uh, I mean, honestly, let's let's go back because this is like a long term. Okay. The AT&T like, one is hysterical. Like, <laughs> yeah. everyone wa- ever want to watch a billion dollar company buy a thing and then immediately nope out of it? I mean, it takes yeah. 18. It still takes 18 months to say no to a thing <laughs> in corporate <laughs> mergers. But yes, you should. You, why, don't, why don't we start at AT&T? Adam? OK, actually, first so, AOL Time Warner. So you got to remember <laughs> America Online, the future. No, that's, uh, I AT- was like a baby then. Like that's. <laughs> That that's like prehistory merger shit, um, and yet already already at that moment you're like, I don't know about the regulatory ta- environment that allows these sorts of uh, deals. But will it get the discs gone? Is is the discs in AOL discs in my mail going up or down relative to the merger? I mean, it's crazy the degree to which Time Warner has just been a like football that's been passed from corporate entity to corporate entity constantly. But okay, so I'll tell the story from my point of view as a media worker making a show called Adam Ruins Everything on True TV. So we're making the show in about our third year. Uh, we start hearing whispers about this merger. AT&T is going to buy Time Warner. Time Warner is a big media company. They own Turner, the Turner family of networks. Uh, they own TBS, TNT, True TV. Uh, they own uh, HBO, a bunch of other things as well. Those are the those are the big ones in my mind. Um, and so we start hearing whispers. Oh, yeah, uh, AT&T is going to buy Time Warner. Oh, it's going to close within the next year or so. You know, oh, we're figuring out what it's going to be. Everyone's excited. Everyone's so excited about it. It's going to be so great. Um, the merger finally closes. Uh, AT&T, the gigantic phone company, uh, buys uh, Time Warner and what you would call a vertical merger because they're the distributor and uh, Time Warner is making the content. Um, as soon as that happens, uh, basically like a month later, they start playing like executive Game of Thrones. People start having their heads chopped off. Um, and it's like super, uh, you know, uh, the the new boss is in charge and he doesn't like this entire chain of command because he has a beef with, you know, this other number two guy. And so he's going to murder him and like everyone who works for him. One of the casualties of that was True TV, the network that I worked for, the literal like corporate protector of 
the president of True TV in the food chain of Time Warner was like fired. And from then on, everyone knew what was about to happen in like three months. And what happened was uh, the president of True TV and the entire network, 100 people, were all laid off simultaneously. Um, they just like said, this is not a network anymore. And they put it <laughs> underneath. And th again, this was a this was a network with its own programming department, its own marketing department, you know, its own like floor of a building in Manhattan that I had been to. This is a workplace, you mm -hmm. know, and uh, everyone was everyone was uh, laid off. <clears throat> And they put it all under TNT and TBS. Now the can people I, who are I, running. Can I ask a quick question on that? Um, as many as you want. How did you discover the layoff? Like, how did the word come down to you that, like, the shit had hit the fan? Like, how did that distribution actually happen? Because it's one thing, you know, my own personal experience with layoffs is, like, small divisions at companies. Like, it's an email. Hopefully you're on email chain A, because if you're on email chain B, you're going to a conference room and you're being told that you don't, can't yeah. go back to your office. I'm just curious, like, even if True TV is a smaller network, is big enough, like you said, to have a, a pretty wide footprint for the scale of what it is. Like, how does something like that, news like that, even get distributed to the people that work there? I don't know how it gets distributed to the to the salaried people who work there every day. I, I think it's probably an all hands meeting, similar to what you're talking yeah. about. For me and other people who like work in actually making the media, we all work as contractors essentially. So we find out in the trades, in the in the news. Okay. And I believe the first time I knew the shit was going to hit the fan was. <laughs> I literally went to the upfronts, which was a thing that used to exist five years ago. It does not exist today. It was a big thing where, you know, all of Turner would do a big presentation for all the advertisers and say, here's all our great new shows. You should buy a lot of ads. And I had to go as a part of my job because they're trotting out the talent. Um, but it was also fun because you get a lot of free food and drink. And, you it's know, E3. They, they, I mean, it's for our video yes, game audience. Yes. It, is, it is quite, it is the equivalent of like E3 started in the 90s as a, as a show for retailers for them to figure out how many of copies of games should they buy because these a lot of things were these are expensive to produce cartridges like game companies were using that as a way to gauge how much do the retailers want to buy and like how much are we ordering in advance in terms of how many carts we're going to produce and so the upfronts functioned similarly in terms of like here is our slate uh and yep. then here's how the you know demographics yada yada work yep and they you know they fly you out they put you in you know black town cars and drive you around new york it's like it gets kind of tiresome but you know it's a big it's one of those things where you're like ah i'm i'm making tv you know i feel like a <laughs> oh wow the, the entertainment industry so we go do this whole weekend it's like in the it's in the specter of the merger closing but everyone's like we're so excited we're so excited i have like a meeting with the president of the network about like the future and stuff like that uh on the flight like i do the i do the upfronts i go to the airport um, on the flight, I see like the day after the upfronts get a news alert that like the head of the network has been fired. <laughs> and so that's, that's the beginning of it, right? Like, Oh, okay. Well, that's a bad, that's a red flag. Yeah. You know, if yeah. I, in the, in the pantheon of red flags, that one's yeah. pretty high up. <laughs> yeah. And they waited to do it literally again, like two days after the upfronts. Cause that's what everyone's Ugh. building to all year. So they let everybody do their big thing, yeah. you know, like, Oh, here's the big thing you've been preparing for the president of the network. That's basically his entire job is just preparing for the upfronts every year. And th so they wait until he's done that. And then you're fired. And then once that happens, it's like, okay, there, it's going to take a couple months, but everyone knows what's going to happen next. Uh, and, you know, I mean, it really sucked. Like, a, like a lot of people who, you know, worked for kind of corporate, you know, but I had worked with them for five years. I was like the people who cut the promos and for the show, they did a great work. You know, I'm like emailing people, DMing people. I DM the guy who ran the Adam ruins everything, social media account and was like, it was great to work with you. He was like, thanks man. You too. See you later. <laughs> 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 it was a real bummer. So, uh, I think uh, a lot of people now 
would tend to look at things like this. This is the story where where I sort of told is like, this is sort of the creative destruction of the marketplace uh, that uh, like uncompetitive or unsuccessful business lines get closed down. The talent and funds are distributed elsewhere, et cetera. But I think one of the things that uh, has been sort of a through line with things that you've been raising uh, with your discussions around this is that, that's not like that's how we think this is supposed to work. Yeah. But that is not actually what is happening in a lot of these types of mergers and like business line shutdowns. Yeah. I mean, we can talk about that. Like there's a lot of great examples of this in in connection to Discovery Plus, which we'll get to. But like the fact is like True TV was not an unprofitable network. It was not one of the highest performing networks. I know that my understanding was they made all their money back every March Madness. Uh, that's, uh, you know, that's, that's the time that they that like they went into the black every year. But like it was a it was a TV network. A hundred people worked there. They sold ads on all the episodes. They had maybe six to seven original series running simultaneously. They had Impractical Jokers, which was one of the top 20 shows in all of cable. Um, and so, uh, you know, it was working. Um, but as a result of the merger, you know, like I say, the people at the top start playing executive Game of Thrones and they start saying, well, we're going to consolidate. That is, in fact, what they generally tell the regulators they're going to do. They say, we're going to lay people off. uh, And that is we're going to find efficiencies, quote, and then that is going to save money and we'll be able to pass the cost savings off to the consumer. Redundancies. Redundancies. That's also like a a fairly common. Well, you know, there's two marketing teams. Don't need two. Yeah. Only need one. Yeah. Exactly. Why do we need all these different programming teams when we could just have it run by the people who run TNT and TBS? Yeah, right? you know, it's just easier if it's the one that I'm familiar with. That just makes the most sense with this acquisition. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, so so basically, uh, they put it all under TNT and TBS. They put it under this guy. Let's call him Steve. I don't want to call a particular executive out by name. But Steve eventually calls me like a month later and he says, hey, we're not picking up more Adam Ruins everything. I was like, yeah, I figured that out, man. Like, it's, <laughs> it was... It was pretty obvious once you started canceling all the shows um, that you were going to work your way. I'm, I was like, I already was already onto pitching the the G Word show. We we did sixty five episodes. Adam ruins everything. It was like you know very very happy with that run, um, but it was like a real bummer to see the entire network get shut down. So that was AT and T buying Time Warner. Uh, they almost immediately realize that this is an immense loser of a merger. The merger that they had tried <laughs> that they had they had put, spent literally two years trying to put in place. They do it. And then they go, oh, no, this isn't going well at all. And they almost the whole streaming proposition is it's debt for years and years to Mm. to do user acquisition. AT&T had a ton of debt already, and they just basically bought a thing that was just going. The whole premise of it was, well, we're just going to do content debt for five to ten years and we'll come out on the other side with a bunch of users that want to pay money and it'll be great. Uh, And they like quickly realize, oh, no. That's yeah, a, and they it could be a bad way to run a business. I think maybe they had some idea about like, look, AT&T owns the pipes and they're right. like, why not own the right. thing that goes on the pipes? Right. But what I think they may be, this is just my own guess, but they maybe realized, wait, owning the pipes is the good business model. Making the shit you can lose <laughs> a lot of money on. Like that's that's down the chain. You know what I mean? Like you want to own the McDonald's. You don't want to be flipping the burgers, <laughs> basically. And so they, uh, they they almost immediately decide to try to unload it. Now there's all these other little stories in here. Like one of them is that like the CEO of AT&T, this guy, John Stanky, like goes to HBO, has the his first big meeting at HBO and the HBO people are like, what's going to happen? You know, we're HBO. We kill it every day. Game of Thrones, everything else. John Stanky <laughs> goes to HBO and does this meeting essentially where he says, yeah, things are going to have to change around here. 
And the people at HBO are like, what the fuck are you talking about? This is the cathedral of television. We make the best television. It's also we in the, the midst of Game of Thrones at its height, right? Like yeah. this is before yeah. Game of Thrones had even finished its run. And yeah. so it's like, it's worth pointing out that yes, HBO has always been sort of a crown jewel of programming, yeah. but it's been, it's rare that they're also a cultural phenomenon. Yep. Like Game of Thrones is an outlier in that degree. And so at that point, Game of Thrones, I mean, like that, that yeah. was the thing on television. But the addiction of these executives, this is going to be a real through line of this. The addiction of these executives to say, if I didn't come up with something, it sucks. And like, because I'm in charge, I'm going to just shuffle things around for the sake of doing it. Cause them to like fuck with HBO. This guy, Richard Plepler, who was like leading HBO for like decades and like had spearheaded their whole strategy, leaves HBO and goes and starts working for Apple, which in my view is part of why like you look at Apple, they're doing a little mini HBO right now. They're kind of yeah. like more family friendly HBO in general. And it's like working really well for them. So there's all these, you know, all of this needless strife, good people who had been working for the company for decades, making good shit, getting laid off, leading the company, et cetera. But almost immediately when they start to do this, they start, AT&T says, well, what do, let's unload it now. And after literally a year and a half, they start trying to find a new buyer. And the new buyer is now uh, the consortium of companies called Discovery, which owns like, I don't know, the Discovery Channel and HGTV. Basically, if you would watch it in a hotel room, it's a Discovery <laughs> Channel. Uh, and, uh, that, uh, and so uh, that is what has been in progress for the last year and a half is AT&T selling Time Warner, all of these companies to Discovery, which also runs its own media service, Discovery Plus. And that merger finally closed a couple weeks ago. And now what we're seeing is the fallout from that, where people are getting fired, laid off again. Things are being needlessly disrupted. Like the same dude who, okay, so the executive I mentioned called Steve, who uh, called me to tell me that he ran, now that he runs TNT and TBS and True TV, he's not gonna pick up more Adam Ruins everything. That guy was fired in the most recent merger. And the shows <laughs> that he, I, watch, I was like watching the same thing happen again. The shows that were under his chain of command, one of them being Full Frontal with Samantha B. Uh, uh, everything on TBS. TBS just got uh, slaughtered. They, yes. they didn't, what was the show that, uh, I didn't watch it, but it's Kill not the commercials. The, oh, sorry. It was the one that, that was, they'd finished their second season. It was getting ready to premiere. They'd been doing promotions and they just decided yes. before the premiere date to say, hey, well, uh, like, what if we don't? I, I mean, <laughs> they, they canceled, the show is called Chad that you're thinking yes. of by Nassim yes. Padrad, um, wonderful comedian. Uh, and a, a show I've not seen, but it's wonderful by all accounts. And yes, they f uh, they finished the entire season. It was literally the day it was going to premiere. Yes. And they said, never mind, we're not going to air it at all, ever. They had sold the ad time already. Fucking Hellman's Mayonnaise had written them a check for $50,000 or whatever. And they were like, you know what? Never mind. We just won't air it. They killed a show that a bunch of my friends worked on called Kill the Orange Face Bear. That was uh, one of the Wayans brothers, I believe, show. Um, and uh, they, like people had literally like moved to Vancouver for the next six months to shoot this show. Oh, wow. They were going to start shooting it the next week, and they find out the show's been canceled. And then they announce that they are shutting down all scripted production for TNT and TBS. These are Warner Media Networks. These networks like basically invented scripted cable programming. I mean, TNT and TBS were like in the 80s making scripted TV. Um, and they've been like an, a successful part of that business for decades. And they said, now we're gonna shut them down entirely. It's just gonna be 
the NBA and maybe reality shows. Um, and uh, it and so once again, all of those people are like laid off. All those uh, uh, development departments are let go. All these shows are canceled. They canceled Samantha Bee's show. Um, it's just like a bloodbath, needlessly. At you know now, all three of those networks: TNT, TBS, True TV. They're all completely dead simply because of rounds of mergers. People were watching them. Uh, they were selling ads against them. They were like making their money back. They would have worked even, you could see them as feeders for the streamer services on cable first, then it goes to streaming. And they just, yeah, they just decided to uh, murder them. And then uh, to get back to the the point that you were making, Rob, this guy, David Zaslav, who's the new overlord of the entire merged entity, he's the discovery guy. He's run discovery networks for years and, you know, he's the guy who brought you Property Brothers and all of that shit, which is fine. Got no problem with the Property brother. Well, I don't know. They're probably abetting the housing crisis, but, you know, <laughs> like, whatever. <laughs> uh, but he just seems to, like, kind of hate scripted television. <laughs> uh, well, part, it's expensive again, and risky, right? Like, uh, yeah. on some level, I, 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 like, see the point. On the other level, on the creative level, like, it, it's and, – and the way – they have chosen to go about the cuts, like are like, you know, Batgirl getting canned while yes. as a tax write off while one of the directors is at their wedding. Um, yeah, the, 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 the Scooby like follow up animated film being essentially finished. And in fact, one of the folks that was working on it tweeted out recently that they were at the session to score the music for their movie that had already been canned, but they'd already paid the musicians yep. and they had the score composed and so he just sat and watched them compose a score to his movie that will never be released to anyone because yeah might as well listen to them do the pretty thing that they paid for and that's just fucking crushing like there are there yeah. are other ways to, to to crush people's dreams other than like this i mean you know what i mean like yeah like having yeah. things canceled is part of how you know part of working in creative fields like crushing things will happen but the way part of what is so galling about this particular one is the way the ruthless way in which it was done like with so yeah. so much emotional detachment from any of the work involved even by the standards of an industry that is ruthless and cold and calculating yeah and it appears I mean, to be done on a whim you know sorry go I was going to say, it's just both, it is both stupid and cruel at the same time. And <laughs> yeah. that is, that is an yeah. impressive combination to kind of find <laughs> yourself in, in the middle of that. It is, it is a consistently frustrating thing to look at people in decision-making positions, basically applying the MBA school of completely eliminate all risk to your business and it will inherently succeed model. And it is fucking infuriating. It really is. I mean, look, cruelty is is not unusual in the entertainment industry, to say the right. least. But like the amount of stupidity and self-sabotage that seems to be happening here. You know, I mean, the, the fundamental thing, look, so there's how we feel about it in the industry, having these projects canceled last minute and having people's livelihoods and, and artistic work like treated so callously. But then even just for the consumer, like av everything I'm hearing is that like average people all across the country are just like. I like HBO Max. <laughs> it's it's good. It is, uh, in my view, and view a lot of people, it's just like the best value in the streaming service. It went right from now. the worst the best service movie library, yeah, to the best to the best service. Like one of the best anecdotes I can give to that is my my uh, when I canceled cable like two years ago. I was like, I'm good because my mom has a wildly expensive cable bill, and I will just use her login to watch sports <laughs> and ESPN and whatever else I need. And then she finally looked at that cable bill and went. 
that's too much money to be paying for cable now, isn't it? And I discovered this while trying to log in to various things, services that it kicked me out. I was like, this login, you don't have access to this to anymore. And I was like, what? But what happened? Mama, like, Mom. what happened to my, my, my free cable? And so I call her up. She's like, oh, I got that bill down. I was like, that makes sense. That makes sense. So I, you know, I'll, I'll live. I'll find some other login to, to mooch off of. But I was like, what did you end up getting it down to? And she's like, well, all I told them was that here are the channels I like and I have to have access to HBO Max. I, mm-hmm. My mom, who like barely <laughs> understands how any of this works, has had gotten so hooked on enough of the shows and the movie library that she specifically that she was even able, even able to name it is is yeah. impressive and that she told the customer service person just give me the package that gives me HBO Max as well and the real reason that's a business win this is kind of uh you know deep down the rabbit hole but like the reason that's a business win is your mom is doing that by having an HBO subscription yes. HBO Max unlike the other services if you have a subscription to HBO through your cable package which is like the same price as getting HBO Max but you get automatically HBO Max that's how I do it too and for a lot of people, it just makes them keep cable as well yeah. because your mom could co- totally cut the cord and subscribe to HBO Max. That's a little too complicated. She's already in the cable ecosystem. It just she works. Says, like it just shows yeah. up in the box and she's good. Yeah. And and so like it it generates more money for everybody. And by the way, it is again, yeah, it's the most rewarding service. They have all the HBO shows. Um, they have ton all of, of they have all of Cartoon Network. They have sorry, what are you gonna say? A ton of criterion stuff honestly yeah. uh, huge Swap. overlap with that collection so like if you like if you like classic films uh they also have the tcm library uh yes. that rotates enormous through. library of so classic films. like yeah huge back catalog um and then yeah the hbo originals and then the the hbo max originals were actually doing quite well like it was kind of a weird branding problem because they called them max originals because they had to differentiate them i didn't fully understand it until all hell broke loose this last week where i was like oh those aren't like hbo hbo shows yeah so like a show like hacks which is the biggest breakout of those shows um is uh you know that is a max original and they call it that to let you know it's not made by the true cathedral of tv hbo you know the priests in their white robes it's made (laughs) by the people at max but like Max original shows won like 35 Emmys this year or something like our they, flag means death is one of my favorite shows right. in years. And that, that is also right. a, you know, I, I'm, I'm like, Oh, I hopefully the Lords at HBO <laughs> decree that they will put it under their banner as like whatever transition yeah. begins to happen. And that's what you kind of have to hope for is like HBO can probably continue to get away with whatever they want. Um, especially as they're launching new game of Thrones, but like the max originals, things like that, you know, who knows? Yeah. Like our flag means death got a second season, order but that means basically nothing, nothing when <laughs> nothing. a 90 million dollar superhero film can just be yeah. become a tax write-off no and that's the frightening part nobody feels safe nobody feels that hey i got my episode pickup i got you know I, they cut me the check uh, um i had i'm hiring People writers are moving out they're changing their yeah. lives like those are all the things you do when of course we're going to make the thing that we yeah. said we're going to make. But they just shelved a movie that, you know, they shelved the movie Batgirl and they said it was because it's a tax write-off. They will. Yeah. They decided they would save more money by not releasing it than releasing it. Um, and they're, like I said, they canceled two shows. Like, I, I still don't understand why they canceled Chad. I don't understand. Just fucking dump the episodes and pocket a couple hundred grand from selling the commercials one time. Like, it's money on the table, you know? Um uh, and it was going back to HBO Max, this is a brand new pro, you know, development programming department that made shows like Hacks and things like that. Um, 70% of them were just laid off. Like they, they created this new department. They hired all these executives. Those executives made a bunch of shows. The shows were hits. They won Emmys. 
and now they're all fired. Well, and <laughs> like, you know, like my suspicion is that in about 18 months, the picture's not going to be great for whatever this new Discovery HBO hybrid is Agreed. going to be. Yeah. Uh, and so it will be at some point, someone will be out there being making the case, maybe it'll be Zaslav or somebody else like uh, falling on the sword, but saying, you know, we need it turns out we do need more original programming, et cetera. We need to sort of but they are carving away organizational muscle and competence to do stuff like this, too, where like you you bust up these teams. Yes. There's a lot of like, institutional knowledge and expertise at like making these types of shows and marketing them like those people go away. It's not like you can be like turn the spigot back on and you yeah. can go back to what you had when you when you blew it up. Uh, no, now you've got to rebuild uh, the entire thing. And now people trust you less as an employer. Yeah, you've burned half the industry. I mean, I'm literally hearing from friends in my little, you know, DM groups and stuff like that. People are saying that uh, they're talking to they had their first meeting with the new executives from Discovery who are now running scripted at one of these by, you know, at HBO Max or whatever. And they're like, oh, yeah, we're taking a little time because we're still getting up to speed with how scripted television works. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, because you fired all the people who knew. And well, and I mean, like, it's easy to dunk on, but that that the the big presentation that Zaslav made, right, where he was sort of explaining their two audiences, uh, where it was basically like, oh, my God, men watch uh. HBO like this, but <laughs> women watch Discovery shows like this. Uh, and it's like it was both like wildly insulting and sexist, but also like baffling Aww. because this yeah. is just a, like absurd, like. If you know anyone, observationally, this is just not true. Like, yeah, it's like false. these 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 binaries they're they're like rolling out for marketing purposes. You're like, that's not that's not true of anyone. Like, this is just like I don't know anyone who watches TV this way. Yeah, well, and and it's it, by the way, like they said, HBO Max is male skewing, and HBO Max is not male skewing. My understanding is the people at HBO Max were like, we're female skewing. We've always been female skewing. Hacks is like a female skewing HBO show. It's about was. a female friendship. HBO you know? Max was addressing the problem that HBO yes. had, which was that HBO historically is male skewing. And HBO Max, one of the success stories was that they were rolling out a slate of mm -hmm. HBO style content for audiences that HBO has tended to ignore. Yeah. But the new bosses are like, hey, we got two things. One of them's male, one of them's female. We got a yin and a yang, and <laughs> we'll discovery, mash them up and we'll get yeah. like a super person. <laughs> <laughs> it's so it, the the level of destruction is is crazy. And just to go back to mergers for a second, like the argument that these companies always make is that it will reduce prices for consumers. That's what they make, and the reason they make that argument is there is a longstanding legal regime in the United States that has been developed since about the 60s or 70s that says, judges now believe this across the country, that when evaluating a merger, the only thing you need to evaluate on is if it's gonna Stupid. raise prices for consumers or not. They basically made a one question test on whether a merger is good or bad. And so all the corporations now know, they just say, it's good, wait, we're gonna reduce prices by firing people. That's the literal argument that they make. But I would ask anybody listening, I would defy you to tell me, do you feel that prices are lower for you in entertainment after these wages of waves and waves of merger? Are you actually paying less than you were? I don't I don't feel Comcast that I am. country in the Midwest has not changed. I will I will tell, I will tell you it is <laughs> it just goes up and it doesn't seem like the mergers have have touched that. Wasn't it during the 18T one 
there was a there was an infamous moment. I don't know if this is the AT and T Time Warner one, but it was where they told the judges actually like the prices are going to come down, and then the first thing they did after the acquisition was mm-hmm. shoot the prices up. Wasn't that that one? Like I feel like that has been. Uh, or it was at least one of those like recently where they, they just boldface lied, just said, yeah, yes, prices will go down. And the day though, like the week after it closed, when there was no, unless the, you know, uh, the, you know, they want to go through a very lengthy process of untangling an acquisition, which is a huge pain in the ass. They basically just shot the prices up and we're like, ah, mm-hmm. we made it through the, the process. Ren. No, I'm just, I'm just, I'm just sitting annoyed. Um, I just think it's an, an exceptionally stupid way. Like, I think people talk, like, complain about capitalism a lot and like, oh, it's evil, blah, 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 yeah, yeah, yeah. It's also fucking stupid. It's just a dumb way to organize a, so, like, a, like a society. And the thing that pisses me off about the, like, oh, we're reducing prices for the consumer, reducing prices insofar as you are making things that people don't want to buy. And so I guess consumers don't have to give you that 15 fucking dollars if you take away the thing that they wanted. Like, it's just, (laughs) yeah, you're right. You did reduce my cost. Fuck off. It's stupid. I mean, a a lot of this is really connected to, um, it's hard to pull this apart from the streaming revolution as well, but it's, it's really starting to look like the idea of cord cutting that, Hey, you pay so much for your cable bill, you'll cancel cable and then you'll pick and choose the different services that you like was like just a gigantic con on everybody. Because first of all, no one's cutting the cord. You still are paying the cable company like for the internet that comes to your house. And for me, that's currently like a hundred bucks a month, like to start. And then, well, you start adding $15 here, 15, sign up for two services. You're talking about a cable package, except that, you know, now you have less options on the cable package that is run by less people because the companies have all merged. Or they're bundling Um, the streamers into your cable package as a way of making the cable packages more attractive. Of course. And then, by the way, part of the promise of streaming was that they were supposed to leave. It was going to be this big service where you could access any media at once. It would be like Spotify or Apple Music, right? The promise of any show that you want to watch throughout history is going to be available to you. This hasn't been as widely reported. The companies have actually started removing films and television shows like uh, HBO Max had made a whole bunch of shows like uh, uh, movies like there was the Seth Rogen pickle movie and American Mm -hmm. pickle, a couple of other movies like that. And the whole point of those was to go straight to streaming. They just removed six of those movies and they also removed like a half dozen HBO shows. And my understanding is the reason they removed them is they don't want to pay residuals to the actors anymore. Um, And so they're just. So now what it's turning into is like, yeah, you can get a streaming service on which you can watch the most popular shows. But if you want that long tail content that the Internet has promised us, the stuff that like only you are interested in, um, you and, you know, your other 5000 enthusiasts, uh, you know, the real back uh, anime episodes or like the old movies on TCM or whatever. Well, it's not really profitable for us to leave those on the server. So we're going to take those down. And guess what? DVDs don't exist anymore either. So like now you're paying more for absolutely less content with no way to get the old content that you used to have access to. And in order to create this world, this this new reality, they blew up a very effective business model called television that people, I think, kind of actually liked, (laughs) you know, like we were all annoyed by the commercials, but it was like, yeah, Breaking Bad. There it is. (laughs) It's on, (laughs) you know, I can watch it. It's on at 9 p.m. Terrific. Uh, I don't know. That's that, that's about my entire rant. <laughs> well, I, it, was, it was I saw a uh, I think it was the showrunner for the Apple TV show uh, Dickinson uh, in which they had mentioned they had to beg an Apple executive at a high level meeting to produce a physical copy of their show because they were worried that 
whatever, you know, 15, 20 years, if Apple gets bored, you know, moves on, doesn't want to do this stuff, like doesn't want to pay for the server space. Well, can I, how do I watch my show? And so they produced a one-time exclusive like Blu-ray for the showrunner. Like wow. here's a copy of your show. And, and then it's related to that. <laughs> what, and this is like a slightly tangential from all of this, but I think is like kind of related to the, the kind of the pyramid scheme feeling that like the streaming world has is Ben Stiller was asked recently, how popular is your show? And there was like a long pause and he answered, he said, I don't know. Yeah. Apple tells me it's popular and there are graphs that show a up, but he's like, there's no numbers attached to it. Or at least like numbers that we, we would normally associate with like 15, 20, 30 million people are watching. And then he's like, it's just, there's growth, but like, what is it? What does that mean? And like that lack of insight, lack of data, f- like feels like a shell game. It all feels oh, yeah. a part of everything we're talking about here. Oh yeah. I mean, look, I've had those meetings. Like I had a new show come out on Netflix um, and we could have an entire different half hour, now 40 minute (laughs) conversation about Netflix. But like everyone at Netflix is very terrified all the time. Um, They they run the entire place by algorithm. And, you know, everyone is constantly worried they're going to be fired at a moment's notice. Sort of the background you need to know. But we have, you know, we have what they call a numbers call. We're going to give you the numbers. But what that is, is it's three very specially selected numbers that you can Mm. tell that they've had meeting after meeting after meeting. We need to tell (laughs) the creators something. What are we going to tell them that's going to give them just enough information without releasing our proprietary data, which is our whole thing is we're data hoarders. Um, And so they tell you how many people start. This is what they told me. They told me how many people started the show. They told me how many people finished the show. And they told me like the completion rate, which I believe I could have just calculated from those yeah. first two numbers. Um, <laughs> but, but Adam, but, they wanted to just give you a third number because two numbers felt too small. <laughs> <laughs> but they don't tell you, they don't tell you any comps. They don't tell you any other shows and what, how well yeah, those Is this do. successful? Yeah. Like, what is this? That's a number. Yeah. But I need and so, others. <laughs> and so literally what I'm doing is I'm sitting there just trying to read. I, it's a it's a 45 second phone call, you know, two minute phone call. I'm trying to read the tone of the voice of the executive to see, is he happy? Is he worried he's going to be fired or does he feel like he's going to get a promotion this year? And he's kind of and he but he's playing close to the best. He's like, yeah, it's uh, yeah, it was uh, good. Good. Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Not not bad. Not bad. I'm like, OK, I. <laughs> Are you, do I get, do I get a prize or not? Like I'm, you know, I'm a, I'm a needy artist. I just want to make the people happy. I want the people I made the show for who gave me, you know, a couple million dollars to make a TV show. I want them to feel like they're happy. They won't tell me. Um, And (laughs) they won't tell me they're happy. They want me to live in fear. They want everyone else there to live in fear. Um, But I think part of it is they actually don't know. Like Netflix overall, they don't know whether or not they're successful because like, are they making a long, are they like, Are they actually the most successful game in television or are they just a VC funded money pit that is one day going to collapse? They themselves are not really sure about that (laughs) and neither is anybody else. And so it's created this incredible feeling of like uncertainty and fear and panic in the entertainment industry that has like really come to a head in the last two months. Yeah, the one other aspect of this as well is just you know, it's a no. It's something worth noting with Zaslav, which is that he also was very outspoken when he came in as being like, "I'm just going to hire the best people." Diversity, like, <laughs> like I don't give a shit. I only want the best people. Mm-hmm. It's all been white guys. 
Oh, uh, yeah. <laughs> it's it's all been like uh, like little David Zaslav's. Yeah, uh, that he's that he's installing. Uh, and like that doesn't happen by accident. He had a number of vacancies mm-hmm. that basically he could fill. And like the best people are all people like him. Uh, yeah. And so I think this is something else I've, I've seen you bring up, Adam, which which is that you can't entirely like this. This stuff like business loves to present. This stuff is all just hyper rational, cold blooded. Like this is just we're just optimizing. But like there's different ways to optimize. And there are political angles to this in terms of like what stories get told, who gets to be put in charge of like who is telling them uh, who gets, who gets the seats at at the table. And so when you see a merger like this as well, and sort of the, the changeover in uh, industry decision makers uh, with, with this sort of angle on it, like it, it does end up also having a political component uh, as well, where, now you have an executive who's sort of avowedly saying that, you know, this this push for diversity and inclusiveness, et cetera, I don't care about any of it. And none of the people making decisions now at this media conglomerate are going to care about it either. Yeah, I, I mean, that's real. There's a couple things going on there. One is there's, we're starting to have a sneaking suspicion you know, this is conversation that we have like in writer's guild circles, right? That there was an immense per- push for diversity over the last couple of years, especially in the wake of George Floyd's murder. And everyone's very happy about that. But people are starting to look around and going like, is that a fad? Like, do the are the people who are making the decisions and like green lighting great diverse shows from creators who would not have been out on television 10 years ago, are they gonna keep doing that? Or is this just what they want, they felt like doing for the last two years in response to a social movement and because there was like a brief sense that you could like sell, hey, Insecure was possible, was was popular, let's do a bunch more shows like that. But is that gonna dissipate eventually? Um, That's the first thing. The other thing I think that points to though is the real argument against mergers and the real argument in favor of antitrust reform, which is, you know, the general idea that we should not have a few gigantic monopolies. We should, you know, it's better for everyone if we have many small companies, is not that, The argument is not that it's going to be better for consumers um, in terms of prices or something like that, is that it gives too many, too few people too much control over our economy and in the case of media over the media that we consume. Like the big the biggest problem here is that David Zaslav is saying, I don't really like scripted TV. Let me fire all those people. Eh, I don't care that much about diversity. I'm just going to hire my buddies from the Skull and Bones Society or whatever. Um, (laughs) That's my favorite discovery show. And, and he has the unilateral power to do that because now instead of owning one gigantic consortium of television networks, he owns two gigantic consortiums of television networks. And guess what? The others are Netflix run by one or two guys, Disney run by one or two people and Apple, which is its own little weird side project of Apple computers. And that's it, <laughs> right? Like we now have a world where uh, a very uh, an ever smaller number of people are making decisions that affect everybody and specifically affecting like what media, what art the public gets to consume. Um, and that is uh, bad. <laughs> what, yeah. I, I, oh, go ahead, Ren. I was say, we're entering a world where the bad selfish decisions that define the economic system, we just have less bad selfish decisions that have more consequences and fewer chances to make good, reasonable decisions. <laughs> yeah. Well, and the notion that that it's happening alongside the rise of sort of like algorithmic driven decision, it's like you have bad actors using potentially bad information to inform like society shaping decisions is 
alarming. And, uh, you know, I mean, I think you can't look at like the rise of Netflix. You can look at it similar to the rise of Amazon in which those are two companies that are sort of like, like, hey, we're going to lose a ton of money for a lot of years. But boy, like, you know, users up, people using it up. And at some point we'll figure out how it all works. And what Mm -hmm. Netflix hit and Amazon is actually hitting this to, to a certain degree, too, is like, ah, shit. We got to figure out how it all works. And yeah. the, 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 you know, Amazon essentially became like an essential societal layer, which makes that very precarious. And Netflix dragged an entire industry into a new model. And the moment that Netflix, and I think this is what you were alluding to earlier, like, hey, the moment Netflix says, yeah, I don't know, like, uh, maybe this doesn't actually function the way that we were hoping or promising uh, on, a, on a wish and a prayer, it's not shocking that causes like an enormous crisis of faith across the entire industry because everyone has been following Netflix. Like Disney shaped, mm-hmm. reshaped how it does production. Like the entire industry is the result of the, is a Netflixification. And the moment Netflix says, I don't know, like it's, I mean, of course that's going to have huge ramifications. Uh, I want to take a quick break here and come back to something that goes off that point uh so we'll stop here for a quick ad break or if you're listening to us on waypoint plus Ooh. uh just dead silence and then <laughs> there's yeah, music i put music here i'm not making two podcasts put the Cut cold out. heart of capitalism in for about 15 seconds which is just <laughs> just a dark void and then right. come back in Kata, just put a breathing sound for just like th- just three seconds of just but like really but like really close to me too though like the, mm. the mic is clipping like right. it, like horror Get movie it. stuff basically Fucking, yeah. <laughs> <sighs> yeah when it comes to your finances you think you've done it all you've saved you've researched and you've invested all that you can now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. Patrick, that, that point about the numbers does remind me of, of something else, which is like, I think something I've, I've seen you bring up before, Adam, which is a lot of your career entertainment being defined by uh, shitty business models uh, yeah. and like near fraud. But like that, that notion of something that ends up distorting things is the numbers are secretive or there's a lack of transparency or just a lot of things distorting the, the baseline business model. And when I think about like Netflix sort of coming in being hugely successful, we think by disrupting in these ways, maybe, but then also they suddenly seem way less confident that that's actually going to pan out over the long term. It's, it sparks this panic, but it reminds me a bit of, uh, you know, the, the pivot to video that sort of blew through the media ecosystem where once again, you were Uh relying on, a business model being pushed by people waving selected uh, interpretations of proprietary numbers at you. Yeah. And changing the way an entire like series of established businesses conceive of their business. Yeah. And then 
sort of <laughs> the, the, the prestige at the end revealing that actually this was basically fraud and yeah. we wanted this type of content but it's not actually you know i'm thinking about the the you know specifically pivot to video was driven by facebook right yeah i mean the, the story that i've told is i used to work at college humor my my uh life my career has been spent jumping from one sinking ship to another i'm just a rat fleeing a succession of <laughs> honest of, honestly not too far off Adam, <laughs> you know <laughs> so so my first regular job in comedy was i was a sketch writer at college humor which was like a fucking dream factory for comedy at the time i mean the, the content we could debate about it but like you know my job as you know in my mid-20s was i got you know, a paycheck and health insurance to write two comedy sketches a week. And then I would film them. We'd film them on the same floor that we wrote them. Uh, but we also went out and shot. We sometimes shot, you know, videos that had like low five figure budgets and, you know, they would be posted on college humor's website and they would sell ads against them. Um, and it was like a successful business model. Uh, but, uh, slowly we started posting them first on YouTube, right? Where, oh, well you get 50% of the ad revenue. That's still pretty good. And we could drive people to the website from that. But then I remember the day that my boss said to me, Hey, you got to check out the numbers we're getting on Facebook. I mean, these are great. These, I mean, there's like millions and millions of views. They don't, they don't monetize, but millions of views and we can drive people to the website. And Long story short, Facebook ended up cannibalizing all of our, not cannibalizing, just normal predatoring our, uh, all of our views and the entire audience went to Facebook and the entire revenue model dried up until they have, you know, College Humor eventually pulled the plug on the videos, budgets kept going down and down. And then eventually the entire company was uh, laid off and sold to actually my former boss, Sam, who now runs it as dropout.tv, which is like a subscription model, really wonderful little, uh, you know, sort of uh, handmade creator content site is what it eventually became. But uh, like Facebook just killed the business model. And then what we later found out because Facebook was sued and lost uh, was that they just made up the viewership numbers. Like when you look at a view, you have to remember, what does the view represent? Does it represent someone who's watched the entire video? Does it represent someone who's watched half the video? Does it represent someone who just loaded the page and watched the first few seconds but then closed it? Like, you don't know. And every different site, YouTube, TikTok, right, they all use different metrics. And Facebook just straight up lied about theirs. They just told publishers, you're getting millions of views. And the publishers said, not just college humor, but like newspapers said, oh, wow, we need to pivot to video. We need to like put all of our business eggs in that basket um, because we're, we're achieving reach. Hey, we're not making money yet, but at least people are seeing the content. And it turned out to be a lie. And like people lost their livelihoods, uh, companies folded. Um, the entire, there was an entire ecosystem of, you know, online sketch comedy, college humor, funny or die, above average, all these companies, those don't exist anymore. There I is no longer a mid market. Yeah, so go for it. I never fully understood where they went until I saw you talking about this. I just figured it was one of those things where I guess people got tired of that, like, brand of, because, like, a wave of those sites just kind of all withered uh, yeah. to, to varying degrees. And I was just sort of figured, I don't know, maybe it was just the, the, the moment had passed for stuff like that. I didn't realize that, no, it was, it was basically homicide, uh, yeah. by like a combination of f like fa Facebook, uh, pied pipering, uh, yeah. these, these firms and then executives at them getting convinced that this was the way to, to riches, even though all along, there's a good question of like, Okay, so if the stuff is killing it on Facebook, where's my money, Mark? 
How do I, how, if it's killing it on Facebook, how do I get money out of it? Yeah, I mean, Facebook, as far as I know, has never made an AdSense or, you know, whatever, like an ad sharing program like YouTube has. I do want to say as a quick proviso that all the companies I'm talking about were also VC funded or funded by larger media companies. And those companies, to some extent, just lost interest. Like Barry Diller, who's IAC owned College Humor. He owned the site for like over 10 years and eventually he's like, okay, I'm shutting it down. So it's partially also a shitty executive at the top of that company. But this is part of the story. And uh, look, here's the thing. Facebook's business model is not to make money for the content producer. Facebook's business model and the business model of TikTok and Twitter and all of them is to charge the content producer money. Like if you, the big difference is like, if you get, if you, companies will used to spend real money to get more Facebook, whatever followers or likes, right? When people would follow your page, Mm -hmm. they would spend money to try to get more people to follow their page. And then they realized if they post it on the page, well, their followers aren't going to see it because Facebook controls what they see. And Facebook is going to depress any content that the Facebook algorithm doesn't like. And so the only way to actually reach the followers who you have paid to get is to pay more money to Facebook to promote the post. And so I experienced this today as just like, look, I have a million followers on TikTok. I'm also on tour right now. If you live in Nashville, Spokane, Washington, Tacoma, Washington, New York City, San Diego, or Portland, please come see me do stand-up. <laughs> um, sorry to plug, adamconover.net. No, tour dates. please, go right but ahead. <laughs> this is, this is how have, I make my and living. And also, if they're listening to an ad-free version of this, like, well, look, you're just getting a little bit of an ad in an episode that otherwise doesn't have ads. So, you know, deal with it. Yeah. So, so this is how I actually make my living. I have a million TikTok followers. I get paid nothing for posting on TikTok. If I get a million views on TikTok, they pay me 20 bucks. But so I make my money. What do I do? Okay, I can use those million followers to drive people to my shows, right? But if I make a video on TikTok where I say, hey guys, I'm on tour, that'll get 30,000 views. I have a million followers. What's the point of a million followers if I can't reach those people? Well, TikTok wants me to pay to boost the post. That is how they make their money. And that's the same same is true of Facebook. And also the same is true now of like Twitter. You know, Twitter was origi- was originally the site where, yeah, if you post something, all your followers will see it. Now, unless you write a tweet that the algorithm likes, you do a thread that's punchy in just the right way, gets enough engagement, people aren't going to see it unless you boost the post. Um, I, I have, and, I've uh, seen on yeah. Facebook, uh, this is less commercially driven, but I've had friends who needed something they wanted additional visibility to like more of their friends to see it. And it's not like you can pull that down as like, Hey, this is a high value, like a high importance poster. Like there's nothing that you can guarantee like, Hey, yeah. a wide circle of friends will see this thing I'm about to post. They would attach pictures of a child, even if it wasn't theirs, or they would like put in like <laughs> wedding, wedding, wedding. And because there were just things that the algorithm is going to surface up higher for something that's completely unrelated to that material, because they looked up, these are ways to, manifest the post to a wider group of people for some piece of information they wanted to impart. And related to this, I I will say like shout outs to, you know, it sounds like Australians politics. Well, all politics are kind of fucked up, but Australia sometimes they spook me, but Australia actually (laughs) kept Google and Facebook hostage and said, we might just cut off Australians from your search engine unless you pay a cut to the news media out here because they were doing exactly what you were saying, which is, Part of what's happened is when you go to a when you go to Google, for example, look something up. How frequently, and we all do this because it's useful. Do you get the information from the search result without actually clicking on the thing? Because right. over time, they have just shown more and more information that they're scraping from these news sources, and frequently, you're just getting an answer to a question. And 
you know, Google now has those things where like they try to assume what the answer will be with like those questions, frequently asked questions at the top. It just, it's, it's convenient, but it's also robbing the places that create all this content of making any sort of material uh, impact from it. And Australia did this to both Facebook and Google and said, you are going to pay some, I I can't, uh, some, some fee basically to keep these places in fucking business if you're going to do that. And like, that is where lack of regulatory action has prevented like that's where the government should have stepped in when these firms were dominating in the way that you were talking about, Adam, where like, like the, the pivots to video. Well, yes, there should have been consequences. Like there should have been checks cut to the firms that were affected, but there are, there are ways to step in on these measures. These are not uh, consequences that are, are, are inevitable. They are consequences that, that maybe are not necessarily foreseeable every time, but even once they happen, there are ways of extracting the wealth back to the, yeah. the creators themselves. I mean, we used to do that in this country. You know, we used to regulate, <laughs> like, if you look back at the, you know, broadcast TV is still highly regulated um, yeah. because it's over the public airwaves and that was the only way people got information. Government used to regulate that. Newspapers, right? One of the only reasons we have, like, why do, why do networks have news divisions? Why does ABC News do half an hour of hard news every, every day? Because the obligation, right? Like, yeah, because the government the core, said, yeah. You must do it. You must serve the public good in some way. And guess what? It worked. They have good news divisions. They do good hard news. They're real journalists. Um, right now, we now you know live in a world where uh, most people are spending like most of their time on TikTok, Instagram, Twitter, uh, Facebook. That's it. Um, and these companies have incredible control over like what we consume and. They are controlling it via the stupidest algorithms you've ever seen, giving people the weirdest content. Um, And we're treating it like you said, Patrick, people have like a cargo cult mentality towards it. Like, oh, if I wave the flags in the right direction and do a little dance, I read on, you know, WikiHow that this will like improve my chances on the algorithm. (laughs) When in reality, it's just the algorithms just going people who watch this also watch this. And that's that's it. The algorithms suck. They're very bad. Have you ever? But they're opaque to us. If if you if you're still on Facebook. I cannot recommend more highly uh, turning off targeted advertising, which at some point they had to, they gave you the option to do. You get the weirdest shit as your ads. (laughs) And the fun game is then they give you the option to, if you find something objectionable, right? Like let's say it's a political ad for, you know, something outside of something that offends you or whatever. uh, You can hide it. And then it just goes deeper down the well. And so every time I log into Facebook, which is mostly just to post pictures of my kids to extended family, I always make a point, even if the ad is fine, is just, nope, don't want yeah. that one. And I just go deeper <laughs> Show down me something the weirder. <laughs> mine have gotten, mine have now gotten pornographic, basically. Where I was like, my wife looked one time, she's like, you're getting a lot of like explicit, uh, like clothing ads. And I was like, I'm, I was like, I do have an explanation for this. Do you want to talk about algorithms, Katie? Um, and it's and I've now begun muting those. And I'm like, let's see what's below. What is below the what crust of this advertising earth? I love it. Um, but yeah, just, just return to that point. Like these few companies dominate our media ecosystem so much and control what people see. It would be very reasonable to put some limitations on them and say, yeah, you have to pay Wikipedia, the individual users, the the content creator companies that are employing journalists that you are making all of your money off of. You need to, you know, when people have followers, you need to show them the content of the tax. people they follow. Like it's a it's a yeah. t- it's a tax for use of in many ways yeah. public goods. 
Yeah. And, uh, you know, one of the, one of the nice things of this story is that like the number one thing that has happened in the Biden administration that I was surprisingly pleased by was the uh, new appetite for antitrust reform they put in place. Lena Khan is like a young woman. She's like 33 or something like that. She's like an antitrust superstar who like single-handedly like changed the conversation around Amazon and antitrust. She's now the chair of the FTC. Um, and she finally has enough commissioners to bring suits. The DOJ has a really strong antitrust enforcer in, and there seems to be actually enough bipartisan support for antitrust reform to like get it through in some cases. We have to see what they'll actually do, but like, you know, the FTC invited me to speak before them through my union, the Writers Guild of America West, um, about like media consolidation. And like the chair of the FTC was like, thank you. Very helpful. Like we're looking into this and they didn't, they weren't able to stop the Warner discovery merger, but like, you know, fingers crossed that they will be able to stop some mergers in the future. And there's, they've started to bring their first suits. I forget against who. But, yeah. Well, there was um, the, the Facebook they're trying to block. Uh, that's Facebook what it acquiring was. Yeah. An, like, Roomba, uh, right? Like a, a VR exercise company. And I've seen a lot of criticism yes. that, Hey, this is sort of small potatoes in the grand scheme mm -hmm. of things. But if it, it's a, well, one, fuck Facebook, who cares? Like, you know, like, <laughs> like, like even if it is maybe disproportionate to what we were talking about, like on the scale of a Warner discovery, one, it's getting the regulatory toes wet. Two, uh, like, screw them. Um, and and it, it's just, you got to start somewhere. And so, like, yeah. if, if it's sparking a conversation of what is, what is too small, well, then we can start working our way to, like, what is too big. And so they've got to, you know, the fact that they're even rolling these out is like, great. Like, Facebook will probably get to acquire the exercise company. Like, it's fine. But, like, let them jump through the hoops. Half the point of yeah. this is making you justify the bullshit after decades of just greasing the wheels for them. Well, and any level of pressure causes them to change their behavior. Right. Like, if the if the feds put on no pressure, then the company's like, yeah, we can merge, no problem. If the feds, like, just make you wait six months and file a lot of paperwork and say, we're taking a good look at this, then they have to be a little bit more conservative. The lawyers uh, respond to that. And, you know, if they actually stop a merger or two, then things really start to change. It, it'll make everybody behave differently. And so, like... This shit, it's very easy to be cynical about national politics, but this is one where I try to shake people and be like, no, 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 like stuff could really happen here if we like continue in this direction. And I really hope we do. Um, and God willing, at some point we start to see breakups. Like, I mean, it's, it's wild oh thing how relatively recent the phone company breakup was like, it, yeah, like, AT&T. Yeah. Our, our, our giant, like the, the telecom giants of today are are the spinoffs of the last big monopoly uh, that had to get broken. Yeah. Up. So fingers crossed, uh, you know, in not just in our lifetimes, but like in the next decade, we see one of these, th one of these firms eat shit. I need six um, Facebooks. That's what I need. I think that's what we're proposing. Rob, we need six different Facebooks. Uh, yeah, I mean, but see, the thing is, like, these companies are so big and they make so little sense that you can actually so easily imagine just chopping them apart. Well, it's true. And, and, fr and frankly, what I realistically that is actually like Instagram should be spun off, WhatsApp should right. be spun off. Like, they Facebook saved its irrelevance Oculus. for a full decade. Uh, they actually did some good things for Oculus. They really actually helped. There was like Oculus is like a weird success story <laughs> for Facebook, in which in which like this pet project achieved yeah, scale as a, as a result of Facebook's. Uh, but even there, Patrick, like we we could argue that like firms like Oculus have to be bailed out and and saved and invested in by firms like Facebook because these things monopolize so much of the investment money. They can they control so much investment capital. Sure, that like. 
you know, the the model of capitalism that I think uh, is why we're, we we sort of inherited the system and, and the grounds on which people defend it is there's this idea of, well, there's people with good ideas who don't have capital and then there's capital holders looking for places to invest it. And that that part of the equation is completely broken down to begin with, right? Where like now it is either like venture capital firms uh, whose business model is like, what if we just came in and just spent all the competition in the space into the fucking grave and then profit? Uh, or, yeah. you know, it's it, like the, the, the hookup between uh, struggling growing firm and the capital they need to sort of take their idea like national. That part of the equation just seems totally broken down now. Like, I feel like well, Oculus has to end up with a Facebook these days because the type of investors who once upon a time would have been like, that seems like a cool industry. And man, you could really you could really like dominate that if you got in early. That just doesn't happen as much anymore. Well, it's very telling that every company's their own. The only goal of any company is to be sold to a gigantic company. It's never to anymore create a business because all the business people know that's impossible because all that is going to happen eventually is you'll be bought by a bigger company. Um, and as a result, like new companies just don't form. There's a really interesting argument to be made that like the only reason we even have Google is because the DOJ went after Microsoft in the 90s. Yeah. And they didn't break up Microsoft. They just went after them, charged them, I don't know, a couple hundred million dollars or something like that. It was in the news for a couple years. But then Microsoft was like, ooh, we saw we, and just sort of, <laughs> you know, like sat on their hands for a couple decades. And you had other companies spring up. And now that's not possible. Like, if you know, no one else is starting new search engines or new companies. All the all the quote innovation is happening at these gigantic companies or is immediately bought by them. And that is like bad for everybody. Uh, uh, I just went through this fucking rigmarole with my bank recently, <laughs> where it's just like companies get made with the explicit purpose of being sold. And most of it is like user capture. Right. Like my bank mm -hmm. was awesome. Simple had like these amazing yep. financial tools that actually like for my adult brain was the only way I could get a handle on saving enough money to like not fuck up my bills. It was amazing. It like saved like I like was, you know, horrible with money before it existed. Then like was able to get things under control and they got sold to PNC and immediately PNC like killed it. Like, even yeah. though it was, like, doing well, right? Like, the, the the issue with, like, the current model for all business as it's taught in the United States at, like, business schools is that it's growth or selling, right? And if there's no growth, if you're stable and, like, that's not good enough, which is, like, insane to me that the, that sustainability is no longer – is not a is not a, uh, a goal for any, like, large business. Like, obviously, there's still, like – where they can survive, small mom and pops, they stay stable and like they're happy with just being able to do the thing they're doing for the right amount of money. But once you get into the like tech industry, especially, it's just like it has to grow or you're going to sell. And like that's where you make your money and you just like let it die and yep. weather afterwards. <laughs> Even stable growth isn't okay with them. Uh, right. It has to be massive growth. Like Netflix, so what happened with Netflix more broadly is that Netflix's entire business model was to create a monopoly. They, When they got started, they were like, we are going to just be the only television and movie company that possibly exists. 
Um, and we're going to go worldwide. We're going to have more content than everybody, just like this massive fire hose. And the big thing that rocked them that I was alluding to earlier is they announced that they had lost subscribers for the first time ever, that like they did not actually build the monopoly. And that like shook them to their core that, oh no, they only have the most successful streaming service with like hundreds of millions of people paying $15 a month. Oh no, what a disaster for them. (laughs) And as a result of that, like the entire industry is contracting 30% now because it was all built on this fantasy of growth, of like growth that was frankly impossible. Like they had competitors the whole time. Yeah. Disney was always going to come around and eat their lunch. But, uh, it, you know, it it's, always, it's, yeah, uh, it always feels like the people don't take into account what audiences exist for certain things and like whether or not yeah. like people don't, you know, yes, humans are, uh, you know, multiplying exponentially, but they don't like those audiences don't grow that quickly for what these companies want to see like year over year, yeah. you know? Yeah, and there's and there's just certain things that you just can't really monopolize, right? Like Uber, it's wild when you think about it. Uber really thought that they would be like the only way to hail rides in cities like across the United States. That it was like, we'll destroy cabs and nobody else will be a competitor in the space. And it's just like, that's not going to happen. Um, <laughs> like, it's just it's like, that's just not feasible, especially at the the cost it is requiring to do that. Um I did want to talk a little bit, uh, you know, before we let you go here, uh, you know, I want to talk a little bit about games. Uh, oh, you know, yeah. I, I know that, hell, I mean, this this sort of su- subscription model has already come for us here. Um, and so, <laughs> so like, uh, having having all these misgivings aside, uh, I also definitely do the thing where it's like, Ooh, what is what is what does Game Pass have for me uh, this month? But mm. but I'm curious, uh, what have you been into lately? Uh, let's see the, the first, the thing that I have been, oh man, I played a lot in the last couple of days, just, uh, powered through all of citizen sleeper on my, uh, last leg of my tour. Yeah. Incredible. <laughs> Did the DLC started it too soon. So I had too many timers running at once and I like catastrophically <laughs> failed three goals all at once at the end yeah. of the game. Uh, like some of the main stuff you're supposed to be able to do that I could have done if I hadn't been trying to manage three timers at once. I really fucked up. Um, I also, I, I'm like catching up with what you guys talk about. I also finished uh, Tunic or almost finished Tunic. I am at the stage of Tunic where I am trying to hand translate a language and I am very mm. happy. <laughs> nice. It's uh, I, I'm a huge mark for everything that Tunic uh, did, like the the, you know, the manual, the fictional language, like Zelda meets Mist. Like, ugh, it's just I can't uh, I, I can't speak any like more highly of it. Um, And then uh, I've been playing a lot of uh, it, like actually on that point, um, I've been just like I finally bought a nice CRT monitor and like hooked up my childhood NES to it. Okay. And I started. Yeah. Is that of interest to you? I'm happy to drive down <laughs> yes. that rabbit hole. Okay. So I bought a, uh, a Sony PVM. I forget exactly which model, but this is the nice like studio monitor that is like, <laughs> they last forever. They're like super heavy metal. They were like used as studio monitors in like Adam, you're just going to, you're just introducing a new purchase for Holy Rob. Rob is Googling it right now. I, this is dangerous. Are- you have dangerous territory. We have entered into the podcast. I'm seeing the prices for anything in this line. Ah, so here's what I did. So, so here's the thing. This is a famous series of studio monitors. These would be used in broadcast studios to like monitor TV signals in the SD days, right? Um, and they have since become prized. 
as uh, you know retro gaming CRT monitors because the picture is really good. They're very customizable. They have connections that let you hook up like RGB signals if you want. I'm still a composite person because I'm like, that's how it looked when I was a kid and I like the fuzzy image. Um, but, uh, they've gotten very expensive on the secondary market. So, uh, I, I, Rob, I think you'll like this story. Um, I wanted one. <laughs> and so I emailed my former post supervisor. Who's the guy who ran all of our post department on Adam ruins everything. He's since retired, but I was like, Hey, do you know any like, you know, post-production equipment houses that might have one of these lying around somewhere. And he was like, oh yeah, I do. And connected me to a guy at like literally a post-production warehouse in Las Vegas. And he was like, yeah, we can hook you up with one of those. I got it for like $300 cheaper than it would cost you on eBay. I had to like create a vendor account as though I'm a production company and like, <laughs> <laughs> like fill it out. This um, rules. Yeah. And then they sent it to me on a freight truck in like a big Pelican case that was all beat up and had like Sony PVM like stenciled on the side. <laughs> it was incredible. Wow. It was, I felt like I was going to the source of the, of, of just like, you know, old, old technology sitting around in warehouses. People still need these sometimes for production, but you know, they'll sell me one. And I've got it set up right here in my, uh, in my home office. And last night I beat Mega Man 2 for the first time in my life. Nice. Uh, I beat Mega Man 2 and it was incredible. Who did Is you it like palpable the difference, like having this hooked up to a proper, like period appropriate CRT versus like adapting it to a modern TV? I really think it is worth it. Um, for me personally, uh, it's it, look, it has the capacity to delve into sort of like, you know, vinyl is better than digital mm -hmm. fetishism. But the fact is, like, if you haven't looked at an actual CRT monitor and played a video game on it in like 15 years, like I have, like, it's easy to forget that, like, the display technology is truly so different that it it looks physically different to you. I mean, it, mm -hmm. it's a bigger difference, I think, than vinyl um, because it's like, it's just the photons are coming out in well, a different well, the, I mean, fucking the, the way. The sprites were literally drawn. I did this big yes. feature on it last summer. Yes, and, yes, yes. That's part yeah. of what made me buy this was reading <laughs> yeah. that feature, Patrick. Yeah, like it was like the pixels were literally drawn in a way knowing how they would then be projected onto the screen in which like when you then view it in an emulator or in a more pristine display, you were, you were literally not seeing how it was meant to be seen because the, the display you're using while CRISPR is misrepresenting the sprites because they were, they were video games are, are, are so tied to technology that of course it's, it's going to, it's going to look different yeah. um, in many ways, you know, I guess worse, arguably, if you're going for sort of like pure artistic intent because they intended for you to watch it on a tube TV. Yeah. And the image is a little soft, like the pixels blur together. And so there are effects. On Look, I would say probably only 10% of pixel artists ever did this, but some of them would, you know, ah, there's examples on what's the name of the Twitter account, like CRT pixels or something like that. Yeah, I know what you're talking about. Um, it, you know, they'll do demos where it's like, look, in this version of Castlevania, they just put one little red pixel in the middle of Dracula's eye. And then that blooms out on an on an original CRT TV in a way that is fuzzy enough that it creates a sort of glow in there. Um, yeah. And like, that's real. It doesn't mean that you're not I'm not like, oh, you're not getting the real experience. But, you know, if you if, if in terms of transporting me to uh, I'm 39 years old, you know, I want to go re-experience my childhood. Part of it is just that. And there's nothing special about that or remarkable, but it is a transportive experience to have. Like one of the reasons I love video games is because video games are like a real place, you know, like I go play a Mega Man level I haven't played since I was a kid. It's, it brings back like a sense memory to me. 
And if I can also have the same display technology, it transports me a lot more. Um, and it also just like looks cool. <laughs> like it just, it's a cool display technology to play with and see what the capabilities are. Um, and if you've only ever played games from that period on like sharp pixel monitors, like it's not cheap to do, but it's worth it just to see what it looks like. You know, you could also just buy, you know, go to the thrift store and buy a $30, you know, old Sony or Samsung or whatever and, and try that too. But it's, it's really cool shit. How much does this thing weigh? <laughs> I'm curious. I'm curious. The like danger to your lower back every time you move it uh factor with this thing. Uh, this one, I've got, what is it? I think it's like a 12 or 13 inch. Um, yeah. And, it, you know, it's not portable, but it's not going to hurt my back to move it. If you wanted like a big screen, yes, absolutely. Yeah, if but, you're trying to get a 27 inch, like, yeah. yeah. But part of the experience to me is like, look, when I played video games at that, people did it on small TVs. Like, yeah, no, get same. up close to yeah. the screen. Uh, and, and, but yes, I mean, they are extremely heavy and, and look, it's also a total gear rabbit hole that I don't like, I, I resist falling deeper into it. And like, I'm not doing RGB <laughs> and stuff like that. I'm just hooking it up directly. Another really cool, um, uh, I think, uh, uh, corollary of this is I've bought, uh, I'm a total mark for all the stuff that analog the company makes, uh, they, they make like the FPGA, uh, you know, the, 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 was it super NT and the analog pocket, pocket. the pocket. Yep. I have my pocket <laughs> here too. And the pocket is not like a perfect device, but the cool thing that it does that I didn't realize how cool it'd be until I got it is that the screen is so high res that it emulates the pixel geometry of an original game boy. So like what you forget is when you're looking at an original game boy, the pixels were not contiguous. They had little gaps around them. Like there was a little white line around every pixel and the analog NT has the ability to create that. And when you play a Game Boy game or a Game Boy Color games, especially look incredible on this thing, you realize that like, oh, if you uh, if you've been playing on an emulator, you've been playing on, on like a modded Game Boy with an IPS screen. It actually looks very, very, very different than the original. And, you know, this is not emulating the exact same display technology, but it's it's uh, reproducing it enough that you realize that like, oh, the the patterns when they have that little white line become a lot more textured. Um, I, I worry I'm sounding just like some kind of fetishist here, no, but it is, no. it's a cool thing to play with. <laughs> this, these are revelation. Kato, is this the thing that you sent the pocket? Is this what you sent us picture? Are you running alone in the dark on it? Oh yeah. Yeah. The pocket recently, uh, huh. had some FPGA cores, uh, dropped the, the oh, yeah. quote unquote jailbreak for it exists in the world now. Um, but uh, the screen modes that Adam is talking about aren't including those yet, so it's still early stages for for that area. But like, yeah, they dropped GameCube, Game Game, uh, Game Boy, Game Boy Color, and Game Boy Advanced cores are in the mm. wild. So, oh, the, the, and, and the way they do this is 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 completely absurd yeah. too, because they they market the devices as, hey, these are meant for to be used with you know you know native carts like things you purchase. Um, but then it is the widespread understanding that like the developers <laughs> of these devices have like just a, just an anonymous GitHub account that they, yeah. that they upload these for <laughs> later. Yeah. Yeah. Unsigned, but they all seem to work perfectly good. And it would make sense <laughs> that the developers worked on this, but it's just one of those, like, please, please, please like look the, look the other way. It's really Rob, funny. Don't get, don't get any ideas that you can't buy an analog pocket till like late 2023 at this stage. <laughs> 
it's pretty, I, I, I'm a cartridge person. Like, like part of it for me is I like going on eBay, dropping $30 on a game I remember from Nintendo Power as a kid, getting it physically and plugging it into an NES yeah. or into an analog pocket. And the great thing about the analog pocket is because the game, like Game Boy and Game, game Boy Color, those screens, like the technology is not actually fun to play now. Game Boy Advance, you get an SP, but Game Boy yeah. and Game Boy Color, there isn't really a way to do it people will replace the screens on them, but that fundamentally changes like the pixel geometry. Um, yep. So there so there really wasn't a good way to play them. The analog pocket actually really fills a gap of a way to play these games. And um, the screen modes make it gorgeous. Like Mario yep. Golf was a game I had never played. Very, very famous. I switched back and forth between here's the normal square pixel mode and the, the screen emulation mode. And it is a gorgeous game with the extra little white border and like the slightly washed out graphics. It's incredible. Um, and just giving you a way to play those games, you know, like if you have a bunch of old cartridges lying around or you go to a thrift store or if you want to drop a lot of money on rare stuff, now there's like a top flight way to play it is like very, very nice. Um, uh, yeah. Well, I may not be able to get an analog pocket, Patrick, but I can get a CRT. Yeah, which, which you need in your house is another extremely yeah. heavy object yeah. to be put be shoved into the corner. Yeah. Where hey Rob, can you just point behind you where you think the CRT would go? Kind I'll of just put that. it on this little Wayfair uh, Oh yeah. Like right in front of your console. regular TV? I'll just move it off to the side when I'm not using it. You know, I'll put it on the floor next to it. This is why you had the question about the weight and the lower back issues, huh? Yeah, Rob is never complaining about his back. He's just, he's, he's a perfect specimen. Look, Rob, they make some that are like really small, like they're like five or six inch like screen diameters. Yeah, but I but feel then, like it would not get an accurate comparison to the OLED unless it's big. Oh my god. So what, is, what was the biggest CRT they ever made? I think they went to like 32. Oh uh, yeah. I don't think I would oh do that, God. but I might do 27 is what uh, I grew up with How in much, the family room. I, <laughs> yeah, I feel like a lot. I feel <laughs> like a lot, um, an alarming amount. Also, like, but then I pull up like uh, Eurogamer did a thing uh, on this a couple of years ago. Um, the the Digital Foundry folks were played a bunch of modern games on CRTs and we're just like you know it looks fucking amazing on a CRT control and i'm like you know i've been looking for a third i've been looking for a reason to play control for the third time <laughs> ah it is fun. i have not actually tried doing that yet i mean the crazy thing about CRTs is like they, they i mean games are designed for them for a long time like i've not hooked my Wii up to this thing yet but i'm curious what my experience is. like that's what i played a Wii on i played it on a CRT when i was like you know, in a shitty apartment and didn't have enough well, money for a flat screen at the time. And I mean, we've all experienced the phenomenon of like you look at old TV footage and it, you think for a minute, wow, I can't believe TV used to look like that. It never did. Right. Like on a CRT, these the, yeah. these files like this, this source played completely differently. It just looks like shit. Uh, you know, on a on a modern display. But like one of the points that the Digital Foundry folks made is that there's been a lot of hardware resources thrown at the problem of like, how do you make stuff look good on these massive high res displays? And then you can run stuff on a CRT at a pretty low resolution. Yeah. And like just because of the nature of that display, it looks phenomenal. Yeah, I mean, I have a really interesting example of this. My favorite television show of all time is The Larry Sanders Show, which is uh, Gary Shandling's show from the 90s. Mm -hmm. And it was uh, it was a, you know, parody or a, you know, it was about him. He's a talk show host, right? And they would do on the show, most of the show was filmed in on film, 
24 frames a second, then they would put that into TV format. But they also shot the show, they shot segments of his fake talk show with real talk show cameras. And so that part of the show was 2997 interlaced, which is the format of CR of a CRT. And when you watch that show on a CRT TV, it was like this shocking difference where you're watching the behind the scenes like narrative and it's all film and it looks like you're watching a movie. And then suddenly it feels like you're watching David Letterman. Like it just looks so much like a real talk show. And when you watch the show today on, you know, HBO Max, where you can see every episode or on you for know, your now. laptop. Or, yeah, <laughs> yeah, for real, until they until they fucking murder him. Uh, it, it doesn't have that same effect because the show is literally exploiting the display technology of, you know, we've got cathode ray tubes that are emitting photons at, you know, 29.97 uh, interlaced fields a second. Um, and it fundamentally looks different on different display technology. And so you miss a little bit of that effect. And, you know, only I, a fucking nerd about the Larry Sanders show, care about that. But it's like <laughs> a really interesting way that so much of our world is like digital that we forget that like the physical embodiment of the media actually does like affect it, you know, uh, in a deep way. Uh, you want to take a quick dip into the question bucket before we wrap? Yeah. Let's do I'm it. Down. Um, I'm gonna ask, so let me just put this in your ear before we'll, we'll answer it in a minute. But a couple of people sent in uh, versions of what is your worst favorite game or what is a game that you love that in terms of like reception or popular memory is regarded as not a good game. So what it like, just think about like that, like game that you love that like generally is kind of known for being trash. Uh, let's, let's come back to that. I have a hypothetical though. Uh, somebody sent in, uh, Jason writes, hi there waypointers. I have a dispute with one of my friends. I've asked them all, uh, who would win in a one-on-one -on -one game of basketball, Michael Jordan or Michael B. Jordan. Uniformly, they all say Michael Jordan. Sure, he's one of the greatest players of all time and would certainly take it personally uh, to a large degree should he stand to lose such a matchup. However, I adamantly believe that a reasonably fit 35-year-old is going to beat a 60-year-old no matter how good they were in their heyday. Maybe MJ still has the technique, but does he have the stamina to go the distance against Michael B. Jordan? I say no. Thoughts? Fuck capitalism and the encroaching ravages of time. How long is the game? What's the what are the parameters? Yeah, I mean, we're saying the full forty-eight. That seems tough, but you wouldn't do that one v one, right? Like you would have to, like even yeah. if we were talking a healthy MJ, you would still be doing something that was like best of you know, <laughs> you know, first to twenty, yeah. or thirty, or or something. We're saying Michael Michael Jordan today versus Michael B. Jordan today, like at their current ages. Yeah. That's yeah. the question. Yeah. yeah, my question is, what I have no idea. But this is such a common topic of like conversation among sports nerds. Like, could an old star still beat so and so? Why is nobody just doing this? Let's just—I mean, how much money does Call Michael Jordan up. want? Yeah. <laughs> they're not—they're like, not as desperate as like celebrities getting into boxing in order to uh, sure. get a get a couple extra dollars. Call uh, him, we can get Charles Barkley for this one, I think. <laughs> uh, but he's so he has, he, he has a sense of self though you know what i mean like he has a sense <laughs> of humor there's very yeah, little yeah. about michael jordan that's that suggests did you watch the last dance the man you know yeah much like yeah. a tom brady is is a man of perceived slights in order to fuel his 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 a uh, very talented ego but nonetheless 
The um, thing I'll say here, though, is is that I remember years ago there was this thread. Uh, I don't remember who I think I've been from a comedian or something, but it was it was a guy talking about playing in his dad's like gym rec league, and it was all like sixty year old men. And he's like, yeah, he thought he had a pretty decent game and such uh, playing in his rec league for like 30, 30 somethings. And he just got smoked by these old men because he was like, the thing you were not prepared for is can they move? No. Do they just sit there in the gym like practicing perimeter shots endlessly and <laughs> right. like just have a ridiculous field goal percentage from like these from these from mid range and out? Yes. And this was the thing that he was just like getting killed. He could move, but like he could not put enough points on the board to actually stay ahead uh, and competitive in in this game. And I feel like that's kind of the thing is that like even Michael Jordan, an old man. Is still like this man shoots a basketball in a way that like you are not going to be able to do. And it's not a factor of age. It is going to be just a you know technique expertise and like raw talent and even at age 60 i think i would bet on mj having having a version of his game that will just demolish an untrained 35 year old i think i agree based on that argument i mean yeah. you know I, i'm imagining he, he's got he's definitely got a full-size court in his house and i know what <laughs> right. he's doing every night you know <laughs> like he's michael jordan so, and Michael B. Jordan is, you know, he's probably, he's probably in weird shape because he had to get like really ripped for a movie or something, but then yeah. he, now he's like not doing that anymore. And so he's at blah, 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 blah. I, he's, there's probably something weird going on with him. He's not practicing his shots. No, I, I, I think it's, I, I, I just feel like the, the old star, I think in most cases until you're starting to like real, like, unless they're really, really old, I think for a long time, their diminished skill set is still going to like dwarf anything that someone who plays recreationally can yeah. bring to the table. Unless I, he's got some injury of some kind, which a lot of them do. They have some weird body problem. That's, that's what I was well, going to say. Like the, the, the injury is the question because that's what actually makes people's like lifetime on sports go down. Like the, the, the reality is that like age in sports is basically it depends on how many fucking injuries do you have? Have you been injured? Like, 30 times in that case you're done like you're gone you could be it doesn't matter how old you are if you get fucked up enough uh google so, michael b jordan basketball he played basketball in high school which is not mm, nothing okay. but it might yeah. be enough to it depends a little bit on the high school but right. yeah i agree yeah. like <laughs> if you made the squad then sure it might be enough though where if he kept up with it recreationally from having done it in high school it it will be close, but it won't be a total shutout, you know? <laughs> I'm not even sure. I'm not even sure to Ren's point, though. I'm not even sure if the game gets a little bit chippy, like it turns <laughs> into some hard fouls. Mm. I'm still not sure Michael Jordan doesn't like come up better there. He's a big guy. He's got six, like, he's got six inches on, on Michael B. Jordan. <laughs> To, to be yeah. fair, yeah. like that's a that's a fair amount. And he's got that killer instinct. Like you know, Michael B. Jordan only played, uh, you know, Creed, but yeah. like Michael Jordan, like you know, went toe to toe with like Patrick Ewing and shit. So I, I think, look, basically, I think Adam, you're right. Like we need to see the celebrity match. Yeah, uh, it would be it'd be worth seeing. But yeah, I'm I'm gonna bet I'm gonna bet on on the goat. Um. 
Another question here. Hi, Waypoint Crew. What are your favorite inclusions? This was not at me. I think it's for everybody. Hi, Waypoint Crew. What are your favorite inclusions when building a cheese board? For me, it's a nice <laughs> manchego, a little honey, and some cornichons. Uh, thanks, Cameron from St. Petersburg, Florida. I'm 22 so my... years old and lactose <laughs> <laughs> Ren, you don't enjoy a cheese board? No, you never, I'm fine, you never no, I'm fine a, with a cheese board. Ren, the cheese board is available to anyone of a, of any socioeconomic status and or age. It's just all you need is cheese and a flat surface. <laughs> or it could be, you know, maybe a cheeseless cheese board. I think at that point yeah. it's like nuts. And nuts. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I do this frequently, actually, because it's very easy to pack this sort of thing quickly for an impromptu picnic after work we live close enough to a nice park down here where like we have we just have these kind of all around and it's always a some sort of like pate to spread on a baguette that i get on the way over to the park um uh, a hard sausage that's usually on the street uh there's a yeah there's a french bakery between here and the park and there's also if if it's too late for that to be closed the the grocery store nearby is nice enough that they have usually a a couple good loaves um uh you know a hard uh sausage of some sort whatever we decide genoa usually or like a sopressata and then um this is this is a thing that i enjoy a lot but i feel like people don't usually associate with uh these things is uh grape leaves dolmas mm-hmm. you know stuffed mm-hmm. grape leaves i love those things and i feel like the flavor profile kind of goes with all that stuff uh really nicely uh and also we do guava paste as like a desserty type thing that you can spread on the baguette yeah. with a little bit of manchego on top and that's that's kind of the sort of that's the, that's our regular go-to's for that sort of spread mm. it's delicious <laughs> I'll tell you, I got this cracker that, you know, every every time cheese and cracker season rolls around, which is, you know, about uh, a week before Thanksgiving, <laughs> uh, I got to get me some uh, Raincoast Crisps, you know, Raincoast Crisps, this brand of cracker. They've got little, basically, they're these little dense brown crackers in a little loaf. Oh, I know, sliced up. yes. They, and they've got the little candied, like, cranberries Ooh. or, like, fig and olive. And so it's texturally, you got the crunch, but then there's something in there that causes a chew as well they're salty and sweet and they go well with absolutely anything that you put on them that to me is the key ingredient of the uh of the charcuterie board yeah we uh mk got into those and now i'm just like these are delicious these are these are all i want um the problem is while i'm making my little cheese board i'm like i'll just have a little I'll just have a little oh, crisp. Yeah. One for the board and, and one like, for me. I've, shit, I've eaten, I've eaten like four yeah. crisps. It, it's I'm, one of those problems where no matter how much of it you eat, it's your body still processes it as a snack. And so yeah. you're still like, I haven't eaten a meal. I've eaten 1,500 calories of cheese and crackers, but I'm still hungry because this was not a meal. And so I still need to eat more food today. At least that's my body. Uh, Patrick, you're a busy guy. I'm sure you <laughs> go in there occasionally and just like, Put some stuff on a little, like, it can't even be a sandwich. Just need to, like, what are these components I'm going to put on a plate and snarf down? I don't. I have the energy of a 22-year-old when it comes to cheese boards. Oh, there's one here? Great. I'll have a couple of them. Thanks. Thanks someone else that built that cheese board. <laughs> now, you just don't care what's on it. You're just like, give me that rolled up Oscar Mayer hand. What excites you I'm not a big, I'm not a, I, I like cheese, but I'm not, I'm not a cheese person. So the cheese board is sort of, take yeah. it or leave it. 
my answer is also non-cheese though is like i'm just a sucker for that i'm a sucker for good salami uh, yeah like fancy salami mm. like hell yeah that as long as that's showing up at, like even if even if there's not very interesting cheese around i'm like we still got a really good cheese board here i think uh, we can we can live with this I have a clarifying question. Are y'all yeah. eating cheese boards alone or is this always <laughs> a, a, a group activity or like at least with another person? Ren, you didn't have to ask such a targeted question <laughs> to the group. No, it's not. That, it's not. This isn't designed to hold be a on, shot. Let me just, let me just to, ask a really innocent question. No, to a I'm bunch trying of to p- discern if I'm uh-huh. the weirdo here. I'm trying to determine if my understanding of the social uh-huh. utility of the cheese board is incorrect or not. So, because, mm-hmm. yeah, go on. Oh, I was gonna say because the reason I don't fuck with a cheese board is because I t- don't do much. <laughs> okay, I don't have so, people over often, and oh, I don't live with my partner. So the thing is, though, this is all part of the beauty. Is like, uh, you know, for a while there, uh, MK was also like, "I'm not gonna bother. I don't want to, you know, eat. Uh, I don't want to eat meat, and uh, I'm kind of iffy on cheese." That's been sort of reversed but for a while there i was playing solo on the cheese board and you know what <laughs> there's little treats for me like it's i don't have the energy to make a full meal but what i do have the energy for is to put some of my favorite like energy dense treats on a plate and like how can i mix and match them in ways that are complementary uh and so you just sort of like shuffle out to the kitchen you know 10 minutes out there just like chop a few favored vegetables or fruits onto a plate like some crackers some cheeses uh, whatever, some nuts, and now you've got like a fun snack that also required no effort. Uh, so this, like for me, it's it the the charcuterie board is sometimes just a a fantastic utility meal. Uh, to be taken solo, and like if you keep uh, a lot of those things around, they tend to not go bad super quickly, right? Like it's like dried sausage, and like if you keep cheese well, like usually it can last a pretty long while, and it's so it becomes this like. For me, the solo activity of eating it is always like, ah, shit, it's like 8.30 p.m. And I don't like if I start cooking now, I won't be eating till nine, but I can very quickly grab the sausage that we use for picnics and some crackers and very easily make something small and quick that I can eat now when I need to do it quickly. So it's like, yeah, it's very it's very uh, util is the word that is that a word? That's not utilitarian. Uh, Utile is a word, though, isn't it? Isn't it? Yeah, it is. Okay. Yeah. I feel like this is this is a word that I would use in Spanish, just útil. And then I was like, wait, am I making that up in English? (laughs) Uh, But yeah, it's very utile to just have those things available as very quick food. Yeah. You know. I mean, like, I'll confess that most of the time when I have a cheese, a cheese and crackers plate, it's me going, uh, I'm surrounded by family and I say, let's have a cheese and crackers plate. And then I'm the only one who eats it. And I've really made it for myself. <laughs> That's but the other night, my girlfriend and I were trying to figure out, look, we're stressed out. Let's we need to de-stress. What do we do? We got super high and I made a huge cheese and cracker plate with some nice sardines that we had picked up in Ooh. Paris, some like really nice sardines. Um, and you know, some meat, some cheeses, just like fending, just grabbing stuff. We got crackers and we just like went to town for like 45 minutes, just like (laughs) stare, just like 
tunnel vision, nothing but cheese board and had a nice conversation. And it was a wonderful like food has activity. Like now I'm going to put the sardine on the cheese. Yeah. Oh, what if would this make a good sandwich? <laughs> <laughs> so so I do I do recommend I do recommend it as an as an entire entertainment experience for yourself and a loved one, friend, if you're so inclined. Uh, all right, so I'll get right. I'll to, get right on. <laughs> back, back to the leading question: the worst game that you love. Uh, I uh, I am curious now. What is what is a beloved classic for y'all that like no one else thinks that's a classic? Dark Siders Two. Hmm. Yeah, that game sucks. <laughs> I know. I know. Hey, Patrick, I know. That's why I said it. Have like, I put a lot of time into that game? Yes, I have. Does it I, suck ass? Also, yes. God, talk about a game just completely misreading everything people liked about the first game. I adore the first Darksiders and was so excited for two. It was just like, just, just whiff. Yeah, I thought people that, liked the Darksiders games. They just liked the first, the first one. one. I like the first one. Mm. First one's good. Uh, Why is the second one good, Ren? I mean, it was just a totally serviceable, like, fucking loot-heavy RPG with, like, Zelda-style dungeons. I could go in, I could I could do a Zelda dungeon, and in the Zelda dungeon, I could get a cool new scythe. Isn't that did you fun? Play, did you play the first one? Uh, I played the first one afterwards. I played the... Oh, okay, all right. <laughs> I played the first one after I played the second. Um, what was that experience like? Did you like the first one? Yeah, I also liked the first okay. one. I think they're they're I liked both of those games. I read the book. Wow. I was yeah, I, I, I was, was a, I really <laughs> a youth and and reading the book. Well, because the, the that 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 studio was founded by a really renowned comics uh artist and so like there there was a whole world building thing. I yeah, I'm I'm look, I'm not going to be disparaging the world building of of Darksiders. I I too uh really enjoyed that that first one and what I wanted at, at the end of Darksiders 1 that promised the arrival of the Four Horsemen of the Apocalypse was a prequel that didn't deliver on any of the <laughs> cliffhanger of the first one. Yeah. And it doesn't take place in the real world and instead takes place in like a different fantasy world where, where death is kind of hanging out as opposed to in a uh, mid-apocalypse real world. Yeah. Um, I guess I, I could pick it up there. Uh, the, uh, uh, my favorite horror uh, movie of all time, uh, is, is, is the Blair Witch Project for or how it, it so profoundly destroyed a summer for myself. Um, and as a result, I, similar to Ren, and I consumed everything related to Burkittsville and the Blair Witch, uh, project. So any ancillary world building that was occurring, it was also an early, uh, instance of doing like cross with transmedia was not a, a a phrase like it was like they just were building video games and websites and comics and like faux documentaries that tied in they were just doing that and inventing it on on the fly and they made a, a trio of games that were all developed by terminal reality um who was a, a solid studio in uh the late 90s doing uh oh what was the other horror game that they made that was pretty uh good i will try and look it up as i can find it here on uh, nocturne uh mm. yes uh uh which is a pretty solid uh action horror game and they made a, a a trio of blair witch games which were just okay but uh did an incredible job of channeling 
the atmosphere and exactly what freaked the fuck out of me when I watched that film. And so I ate up every single one of them, especially because they didn't take place um, alongside the film. They were filling in the mythology gaps of like allowing you to experience some of the the, right, the first the one was like 1930s Blair Witch, right? Where it's there's like a 1930s a, one. There's one that takes place in like the 1800s or something where it's like the origins of like the curse and the witch in the woods. And they were all like overhead, like old school Resident Evil style survival horror games. And I mean, yes, were you running from like big sticks that were chasing you in the woods that maybe like doesn't work as well? Now, uh, yeah, maybe, but uh, I adored them uh, when they came out, and so never defend them as any good. I replayed a good chunk of the first one on a series at Giant Bomb. If you, uh, I, I presume those are still up somewhere, uh, but I did revisit that at one point uh, over there, and yeah, I, I don't know that I'll continue to defend them, but but my heart will. You know, I'll I'll uh, I'll venture one. The one that comes to mind is actually a game that I believe y'all mentioned on a recent. I think it was a stream. Um, when I was a kid, I really loved the game Yonoid. I owned a cop. I still have my childhood copy. I'm looking at it right now on my shelf. Um, I have no idea why I had it. I we did not eat at Pizza Hut. I had no attachment to the character. I think I literally just saw a magazine ad for it and said, oh, that guy jumping on the pogo stick looks cool. Mom, please buy me Yonoid. What was the um, game from Capcom? And though? I loved your that defense, game. In your defense, it was a, Yonoid is a, 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 they just changed the sprites and adapted a different Capcom platformer, brought yes. it over. And I, so I think, I think you're, you're in the clear on this one. <laughs> Don't let this, this cloud oh. of shame, uh, uh, hang over you too much. I'm not ashamed particularly, but this is a game that almost <laughs> nobody talks about. I don't think anyone considers it a classic. Uh, the best part of the game is a pizza eating contest between you and a different Noid where you had to eat the exact right amount of pizza. There was a lot of deep strategy to when you wanted to double your pizza. You would want to like save your double unit for when you were eating a whole pizza so you would get the most pizza points. Um, and there was a lot of like, it was, it was like a pretty okay platformer with some really weird attributes. Um, but the, you know, the music is emblazoned in my head. Uh, and it was just like a very formative gaming experience for this very forgettable uh, uh, tie-in game for an advertising mascot of a restaurant I didn't eat at. It's like a very inexplicable <laughs> formative experience. I think but if it, more people you know, had read the novelization of the game, though, <laughs> uh, I, I feel like people would appreciate the Noid's journey a bit more uh, in that in that game. Um, so I guess for me, like my default answer still, but I've given it before. So like we'll move on from it, but like the first Kane Lynch game, I legit love, like, I think it's just a nasty, like B movie crime epic, uh, that is deeply off putting and rules, uh, in a lot of ways. Um, a game that like just sort of sank like a stone. And I agree. It's not as good as like, it's, it's not an amazing follow up to, the first game, but I really liked the Darkness series, and I thought the Darkness yes, 2 was Yes, the good. Darkness yeah. 2 fucking rules. Yeah. <laughs> and it's just like, it's like, I think it was legitimately awesome uh, in terms of, like, how you use the powers. It's one of the there's like this window of, like, superhero games that some of them did an amazing job of just being like, what is, like, 
leaning into the fact that like oh yeah this would be this would be hyper violent and gruesome like i think prototype is another one that sort of starts from that assumption of like yeah no if you put this character in in the world like they're just gonna fuck shit up uh and it'll be horrible and awesome and that's the darkness too darkness too is like how much like slaughter can you execute using the gamepad and your fucking tentacles uh in like record time eat a heart Yes. Uh, right. Oh God. Throw right. a spear. Awesome Throw executions. Right. And so you would get in the zone of being like, you would like Tasmanian devil through a shooter level. And like the only thing that like you're really consciously seeing because it's moving at such a pace is like one tentacles picked up a mobster and like the others plucked out his heart. And you're like, I'm unstoppable. This, this rules. And nobody like i guess it was a follow-up to a cult hit and it just didn't connect to the original audience or didn't grow it at all but like that was the end 2k i think just like washed their hands uh of that series after that but i'm like darkness 2 ends on sort of a cliffhangery note and i'm still out there kind of thinking someday someone should dust that off i have like non-answers i feel like because one of them doesn't really fit the like prompt of like other people lambasted it. It's more just like, I don't think anyone else knows that this game exists. Yeah. Like, very few people know that this game exists, which was Lyro. Has anyone else, has anyone here played that game? It is basically just, what if you took worms and made it real time instead of turn based? Mm. Uh, and huh. it was this little shareware thing that, like, spent so many hours in, like, the, uh, middle school uh computer lab playing against my friends randomly and like i was like oh i don't so like it fits in that no one fucking knows this thing exists basically but not (laughs) not in the actual like people lambasted it my other non-answer is the combat in kingdom hearts which i enjoy and think is actually (laughs) patrick is (laughs) patrick is making (laughs) <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm a cat for a brief moment there. Something oh. in my throat. It's totally fine. The combat's totally fine. I like it. I actively enjoy it. I think it has a very specific rhythm, which if you're looking for a specific type of character action game, it is not that. It is a rhythm that is closer to a super fast ATB RPG system, which I was able to grok as a kid. And I think it, I think it feel, I think it feels good for what it is. Like it's trying to go for something very specific. It's trying There's to go for this in between. Uh-huh. <laughs> this is what I'm saying. This is why. It's like obviously like that, those games are huge and lots of people love them. So like it doesn't, it's kind of a non answer, but like in the general, a lot of people don't enjoy the combat and like slog through it to see the funny weird other interactions that happen in those games i enjoy the combat for what i think that i think that i think that qualifies because most people talk about kingdom hearts in those terms yeah love this world characters exploring i think it's a fun system it's a fun it's a fun little twist totally fun combat it's better it's better in three but it's you're starting in a ditch and working your way out. Can you imagine that series with like Final Fantasy sevens like that? That is good ass. Mm. Like mm. real. Ugh, give it to me. I we have to point out one. To last be fair, thing before, the yeah. only reason Final Fantasy seven remake exists is because like Final Fantasy can can run because uh, 
uh, Kingdom Hearts walked for it. it. I fucked up the the phrasing of that, but like it's I mean it's literally yeah like I don't think that yeah. that game is as good as it is without Kingdom Hearts doing the legwork. Do you think Kingdom Hearts mm. Four is gonna feel that way? No, because they are going for something different. Because they're going for something different, but there is a lot yeah. of overlap in the developers, and like they're obviously taking it for a more wide, wide, uh, wider audience with the seven remake series, which is why they made it feel the way they made it feel. But Kingdom oh, Hearts is its own specific- also also called people <laughs> people who have standards when it comes to combat. God damn it! I have wider standards. audience. I like, right. and those standards was, say that Kingdom Hearts is good. Last thing I wanted to point out, because I, I this it started because uh, Adam asked, does I don't think anyone considers Yonoi a classic, and I was like, no, there's got to be like some article mm. that I can like read a funny phrase from. Didn't find it, uh, but what I did find was a uh, a website uh, that they promised Yonoi two Game of the Year edition, last updated November 9th, twenty twenty, graded in one month for the. New Jam 27, New Jam City 2017 yeah. Game Jam hosted at <gasps> HTTPS colon forward slash forward slash waypoint dot vice dot com. <laughs> what? Uh, I'm going to I'm going to click this what is into the chat. Uh, I think this is the same game. Um. And yeah, I guess some Waypoint people made a 3D platformer, Yonoid spiritual, not spiritual. That is just a that's just a sequel. Um, oh my god! Yeah, it's been played s- by a ton of YouTubers, like incredibly popular. Uh, wow! What the fuck? I've never heard of this. Seventeen days we- ago. Seventeen days ago. Most recent comment. Why is this game so good, bro? It's really <laughs> fun for a game that only has three levels or four, if you include the final boss level. Whoa, they like the Noid has some kind of like rope system he can use to pull yeah. on stuff. Yeah, I we're gonna have to. <laughs> this may uh, have been played on a, on a on a stream in 2017, but yeah. I, you know, it's been it's so long, long, it's been enough. long enough. Let's bring it back. What the fuck? Wow, yeah. I love that it's a I love that it's a, a PlayStation era platformer. So in mm-hmm. this world, Yo Noid <laughs> was a not a success on the NES. But then, what? Like two or three generations later, they were like, the company was like, you know what? We this need to we do need, a follow This is what the world Noid. needs more of. Yeah, yeah. It's, it, well, Crash Bandicoot really inspired us to make a new Yonoid. Yeah. <laughs> Once we saw Crash, we knew that the Noid's time had come. That we could finally technology caught up to our vision. I mean, uh, it's just it's just hilarious because all the comments here are like just drowning in irony until they go but yeah it's actually like pretty fucking good like i don't know what to do with myself and so coming to a waypoint stream near you real soon uh yonoid 2 game of the maybe you know what at if we can somehow line i think adam oh. can somehow line it up we would i think if we were to do it i would love to watch you play oh i yonoid would love 2. to i mean yonoid one is like it's one of those games where like you, you know, you're like, I think I might be the only person who's ever had the experience <laughs> playing the game. Like no one ever speaks of speaks its name. It does not come up. Uh, and so the just the fact that like other people remember it well enough at all to make a little tongue in cheek parody game of it is like a, a revelation to me <laughs> to have found this out on this podcast. Oh, what an experience. <laughs> 
You're welcome. You're welcome. Oh, That's the I'm, magic I, of reeling. points. <laughs> uh, we hope you've enjoyed the break. Our theme music is Slide Asleep by Two Mellow. Check out more of his catalog at twomellowmakes.bandcamp.com. Uh, Adam, you gave us a pitch earlier, but let's let's say it one more time for the people. Where can where can they go to see what you're up to and get your tour dates? Sure. If you go to my website, adamconover.net, uh, all my tour dates are there. I'm going to be in Nashville, uh, New York, Spokane, Tacoma, uh, San Diego, and Portland. I also do a podcast, podcast listeners, called Factually, where I interview a different uh, expert from around the world of human knowledge every week. Uh, do a fun, funny little in, informative interview if you want to check that out. So it was a good time. Uh, but please come see me do stand up if you're in any of those cities. Uh, and of course, if you are listening to this ad free on Waypoint Plus, then you already know this. But if you are like, great podcast, but what what can I do about all these ads? You can give us money. You can go to <laughs> WaypointPlus.com uh, and subscribe, and that gives you access to ad free versions of the podcast, uh, as well as uh, gives you access to our premium feed. And hey, please be sure and rate and review us on your podcast platform of choice if it should allow such a thing. You know, I'd like to think we're a five star podcast, but it's not for me to say. It's for you to tell us. Hey, to five point, stars. We, we we mention this sometimes. Let's rally that number up. Like like make a con- if you have not gone on there, reviewed the podcast on iTunes is the one that's most important. But if you go there, <laughs> like it means a lot. Like it seriously does help. Like like it is one of the best things you can do next to signing up to Waypoint Plus is just reviewing the podcast and attaching an arbitrary number of stars. Frankly, I think. All that really matters is that you gave it the review than it does. Oh, yeah. Five stars. People I use for all because podcasts, there are no publicly available download numbers. So I use number of ratings as proxy for podcast popularity. Like if I'm trying to figure out, do I want to go on this podcast or not? How many reviews they have? They have over a thousand. Okay, it's pretty popular. So even just giving any review is helpful. We are at one point six. K Ooh. is what it says. I don't know what that actual full number is. I'm sure we could look it up, but I'm not going to. What's the number get at one point seven? Can we yeah. get to 1.7? Can we do it? Can we do it, Waypoint community? Please. My podcast is actually at 1.7, and it is sweet. See, so we you got to get synergy there. here. Come on, let's, <laughs> let's go. <laughs> Incredible. We'll be back again uh, next week with another Waypoint Radio, or maybe another Waypoints. Who knows? There's so much. There's so much happening uh, in our in in the in the bounteous content uh, that we're bringing you every week. Until then. Let's just hold on for a hero. Let's hope Lena Khan and the FTC fix all this shit that we that we brought up. I hope so. From your lips to Lena's ears, honestly. <laughs> Peace. When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com.